Hello and welcome to Grand Final History, a podcast history of VFL and AFL premierships. I'm Kieran McGee and in this episode we go back to 1898, the second season of the VFL and what could be considered the first Grand Final of the VFL's history. But as you will see, the finals were arranged in a very different way in the early years of the VFL. Before we get started on football, let's set the background on what was happening in 1898 for the citizens of Melbourne and Australia. Federation of the separate colonies was still a work in progress. Referendums were held in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia and Tasmania. They passed in all but New South Wales. The Federation process would continue, but there would be three seasons of VFL completed before Australia was a united Commonwealth. In March, as reported in the Argus, Premiership caps for 1897, won by Essendon, were handed over to the club delegate at the VFL's delegate meeting held at the Port Phillip Club Hotel. At the same meeting, the chairman of the match committee, reporting on the fixture for the upcoming season, said they had tried to avoid clashing of the big matches on the same day, endeavouring to scatter them as well as possible and, except in one instance, Essendon versus Carlton and Melbourne versus South Melbourne, they had succeeded. They also had, as far as possible, tried to arrange that a team should play on its own ground every second Saturday. There would be no new rules introduced for the season. This reflects the popular opinion that the changes initiated in the first year of the VFL, such as no longer allowing the little mark for a kick of two yards, and the umpire throwing the ball in when it went out of bounds rather than bouncing it, had been a success. There would still be 20 men on the field in the VFL, The VFA had reduced to 18 men in 1897 and it would not be until the VFL's third season that they also reduced to 18 men. The VFL delegates met again on the eve of the season. One item on the agenda was a proposal that the league should not accept any trophy from a firm or an individual for the team that achieved the minor premiership, that is, topping the ladder at the end of the regular season. It was contended by some that it would be undignified to reduce the league to the level of an advertising hoarding but that motion was lost, and it was decided to accept any offer. Clearly, sponsorship dollars have always been welcome in the game. Evidence that the VFL was seen to be improving the local game can be seen in the comments of Markwell, writing for the Australasian in his preview on the first Saturday of the season. The sport is, at the present moment, as free from blot and disfigurement as it was in the days of its greatest purity, and I speak as one who has been behind the scenes and who knows exactly how those in authority over the game are comporting themselves. We have the proper class of men controlling affairs, and while those remain in office, I have no fear for the future of football. Markwell did call for the game to be kept open. He highlighted possible reasons for the fall in crowd numbers at the football in recent years. These included the popularity of cycle racing, the hard financial times leading to a lack of sixpences required to attend the game, and the race meetings occurring weekly or almost daily. And while they all may have played a part, the game had itself to blame. For I am convinced that no outside agent could have undermined the popularity of football had not the game degenerated from an open, artistic and pleasing spectacle into an unsightly scramble wherein skill was conspicuously absent and might alone prevailed. Holding this opinion very strongly, I have been gratified in observing the earnest efforts that have, for the season or two, been made by the League and by the Association to effect improvements. Every change introduced of late has been a change for the better. 
The play last year was a vast improvement on that of the preceding year and cannot be questioned, but at its best, it failed to approach the exhibition to which we were accustomed a decade or so ago. So the game was improving, but still not as good as the old days. One of the reasons for the improvement, as demonstrated by Essendon, was the move to placekeeping. That is, players playing in a set position on the ground, rather than following the ball all over the ground. Perhaps we saw an echo of this in the start of the 2019 season with the implementation of the 6-6-6 rule after a goal. As Mark Wall said, I've arrived at the conclusion that the captain who fails to make his men understand the benefit to be derived by keeping in their places will land his club nearer to the bottom than the top of the list. And this will be the case, however gifted the individual members of his company. Umpires were also encouraged to distinguish between trifling and serious offences, and to show some discretion. Markwell made an early call for what we would now know as the advantage rule, where a team that has the flow of the game is not penalised by giving a free kick that would slow down the attack. It would be many years before this was formally adopted in the guidelines. Reinforcing the positive view of the game was Follower writing in the leader on the same day. It is generally agreed by followers and players of the game that it was distinctly improved by the changes introduced last year. The element of danger can no longer be urged against football as a desirable pastime for the youth of the country to indulge. While there were no rule changes for the game in the VFL second season, the round-robin finals was dropped. The dilemma for the league was to keep all eight teams involved for as much of the winter season as possible, allowing each club to play each other at home and away in the regular season, but also to reward the team that won the minor premiership by topping the ladder at the end of the regular season. Season 1898 saw an innovation that might excite the league headquarters today, where every team would play in the finals. Well, kind of. After 14 rounds, when all eight teams had played each other at home and away, the minor premiership would be decided. Now hold on tight for the next part. The clubs would then be divided into Group A and Group B. In our modern times, we might call them conferences. Group A would be the four teams finishing first, third, fifth and seventh. Group B would be the four teams finishing 2nd, 4th, 6th and 8th. In what are sometimes described as the sectional finals, or the sectional round, each group would play three rounds, with the home ground being chosen by a coin toss. The team that finished on top of Group A would play the team that finished on top of Group B in the Premiership decider. Unless the minor Premier missed out on playing in the final, or in fact lost that final, in which case they could challenge and add an extra week to the finals. But there's just one more wrinkle. For the minor premiers to earn the right to challenge, they had to win at least two matches in their sectional series. This was to ensure that they did not rest all of their players during the sectional games before the potential challenge match. Did you follow all that? In short, win the minor premiership and at least two of your sectionals, and you can challenge whoever wins the playoff game between Group A and Group B, unless you actually won that. The challenge round seems odd for those of us who are used to the modern final system, but all it was was giving the team who finished the regular season on top of the ladder the double chance, as do the teams in the top four today have a double chance. Let's go back to the start of the season, and we can worry about the finals when we get to them at the end of the season. The opening round was on the 14th of May, and it saw Essendon at home on the East Melbourne Cricket Ground playing Fitzroy. As reported by the Argus, the season opened with dissension and defeat for Fitzroy. In these early years of the game, 
Players voted for the captain and vice-captain. For Fitzroy, Sloan and McSpearan were elected captain and vice-captain, defeating McMichael and Mick Grace in each case by 13 votes to 12. The result was that neither McMichael nor Grace played in the opening round. Essendon benefited from all this division to thrash Fitzroy by 10 goals. Not a promising start for the season, but things did improve. Mick Grace returned to the field in the round four game against Melbourne, explaining his absence on the grounds of a cricket match. However, McMichael did not play another VFL game. Essendon had a strong season and claimed the minor premiership after 14 home and away rounds with 11 wins and a magnificent percentage of 202%, having only lost three games. Two in a row at the middle of the season and falling to Collingwood in the final round. Collingwood having some bragging rights by beating Essendon twice. Fitzroy finished third on the ladder, having won five in a row after their opening round loss to Essendon before losing three games in a row in the middle of the season and then turning things around to win five in a row to complete their home in a round third on the ladder, just behind Collingwood. Before getting into the sectionals, it's also worth mentioning the fierce rivalry between Fitzroy and Collingwood. Neighbouring suburbs, but no love lost between these two foes. Fitzroy won the first match at their home ground, but in round nine, the Collingwood players had some extra incentive. The Collingwood City Council had promised the players £10 each if they'd won, which is about $1,500 in today's terms. Perhaps it was the motivation required, because Collingwood won despite some inaccurate kicking. Four goals 11.35 to three goals 5.23. The home and away games were done. The season was not long enough for everyone to play each other three times, so the new sectional format began. It's better to think of these games as sectional matches, because calling the finals creates the bizarre situation that St Kilda, who had not won a single game in the season, would now be playing in the finals. So I think sectional games is the best category for the next three round matches. In Group A was Essendon, Fitzroy, South Melbourne and Carlton. Group B had Collingwood, Geelong, Melbourne and the winless St Kilda. The first round of sectional games saw Fitzroy travel to South and they finished the game strongly to continue their winning form. In the other sectional, in the other Section A game, Essendon had no trouble defeating Carlton, 9 goals 21 to 1 goal 2. In Group B, Geelong and Collingwood both had big wins over Melbourne and St Kilda respectively. Round two of the sectional games on September 3, in Group A, both Essendon and Fitzroy remained undefeated in their games against South Melbourne and Carlton. Carlton kicked one goal one in the first quarter and did not score for the rest of the game, while Fitzroy piled on 12 goals, 18 behinds. In Group B, Collingwood beat Geelong to remain undefeated, while Melbourne picked up their first sectional win against St Kilda. Round three would decide who would lead the ladders for each section and get the right to play off in the final unless there would be a challenge. And Essendon, the minor premiers, had met the conditions by winning at least two of its sectional games, but you already knew that, I'm sure. Fitzroy had the home ground advantage and outplayed Essendon to emerge clear winners by 29 points. That meant Fitzroy were on top of Section A and Essendon were out of the running. But wait, they could still challenge. In the other half of the draw, Collingwood just had to beat Melbourne to ensure its place on top of its group. Geelong must have been hoping for an upset because they had the better percentage than Collingwood and they were sure to beat St Kilda. Collingwood were only seven points in front of three-quarter time but finished stronger than Melbourne to go through the sectional series undefeated. So on September 17, there was a final between Collingwood and Fitzroy. When the fixture was published in the Argus in March, 
This was scheduled as the final match for the major premiership. I guess they had not planned on the minor premier having to challenge after this game. And we'll see this lack of planning did not improve. Looking at the history books, this game between Fitzroy and Collingwood is now labelled either a semi-final or a preliminary final. But that's more about us force-fitting labels we use today back onto a very different final system. The league left it up to the clubs to decide which home ground was to be used, with the league to decide if no agreement was could be reached. Collingwood and Fitzroy agreed to draw lots, and Fitzroy gained the advantage of a home game. Although the Argus reported that Collingwood did not see this as a significant issue. It was recognised that this was the penultimate game, with the winner to take on the same olds the following week. Over 13,000 supporters gathered in the Brunswick Street Oval. The weather was ominous. A hurricane blew from the north, and by late afternoon the sky was full of debris. Hence the play was defensive and the ball out of bounds often. Collingwood seemed to be the better of the two sides until Pat Hickey dumped the Collingwood wingman Charles Buffersheim into the ground and knocked the go out of him. This seemed to be the turning point, and Fitzroy got their second goal in the last quarter, which was too much for Collingwood. Fitzroy had defeated their neighbouring rivals, two goals 10-22, to Collingwood, one goal, five behinds, 11 points. So there would now be an extra game to decide the premiership. Knowing that Essendon had been eliminated from the sectional final two weeks before, a challenge final, or what we would now call a grand final, there should have been plenty of time for the league to make sure they had organised the venue especially as the cricket season was fast approaching. Sadly, forward planning on this issue was a bit lacking, and that would create high drama. It seems the VFL had not actually booked a ground for the final to be played on. The Junction Oval was then finally nominated, even though it had already been top-dressed in preparation for the cricket season. In addition, the playing area was surrounded by an asphalt cycling track. Not that this stopped the ground being used for St Kilda's home game during the regular season. Essendon was having none of it. They would not play at the Junction Oval, not without top dressing, not without cycling track. It was not a suitable ground. They threatened the boycott and the game was in doubt for the entire week. On the Friday morning before the game, the Age headline was, Essendon had abandoned the match. Only late on the Friday night, after the Essendon committee had met for two hours, was it confirmed that Essendon had agreed to play. Hard to imagine these days. The sportsman reported, So high has the feeling run in some quarters regarding the dispute as to where the final match should be played that matters had assumed a very serious phase. One delegate considers that his character has been assailed and I am informed that he has consulted his solicitor in reference to the matter. I'm not sure whether that led to any further action. Fitzroy had their own challenges in the lead-up to the game. Their captain, Alex Sloan, was at risk of missing the game. While rowing in the Yarra, he had discovered a corpse and reported it to the authorities. An inquest was scheduled for the same day as the grand final with Essendon. The magistrate, reported by some to be a Fitzroy supporter, managed to reschedule the inquest to a more convenient time. So finally, on Saturday, September 24th, everything was in place for what can be now called the first VFL grand final. Leading the Essendon team was George Tuckey, following on from the same old successful 1897 season. As discussed in the last episode, he represented Victoria in both in cricket and football and won the 1897 Stallwell Gift. Fitzroy was also led by a well-rounded sportsman in Alex Sloan. 
recognised for his leadership skills as well as for his football career. He was also a renowned rower. He represented Victoria as a stroke in the Victorian 8 and won numerous intercolonial titles. He was also awarded the Helms Trophy in 1897, which was awarded to the leading amateur sportsman of the day. He was in good company. The previous winner was Edwin Flack, Australia's first Olympic champion, and the following year the winner was Victor Trumper, the celebrated Australian batsman. The umpire for this big match was also a leading figure of the game. Henry Ivo Crapp would umpire seven of the first VFL Grand Finals and was renowned for his control of the game. Known as the VFL's Prince of Umpires, in the capacity of central umpire he attained a degree of skill which stamped him as a prodigy and was one without peer in the history of the Australian game. He was also proud of the then unusual ability to refer to all players by their names during the course of the match. He would be inducted into the AFL Umpires Hall of Fame in 1996. A large crowd of 16,000 supporters gathered at the Junction Oval. This was noted as an unusually large crowd, given that it was not the local ground for either club. Much of the recently laid top dressing soil had been removed and the age reported that the ground played fairly well, but though its general hardness was unavoidable, there were dusty patches which would not have been found on a ground in perfect proper condition for such a match. The Argus noted that the ground was so hard in places that players skated on it a good deal. Perhaps the best way to give you a feel for the game is to read the summary published in The Sportsman a few days after the game. A little wind blew from the south, and the fall of the coin flavouring Fitzroy, they kicked towards the northern goal after Crap had sent the ball rolling, and a crowd of nearly 16,000 people yelled and roared for a start. It was seen that there was to be a fast and furious struggle in the final match. The two rucks coming together, with a great charge, the ball was squeezed out onto the western wing, where Jack Dalton smartly got to work and centred. On Fitzroy rushed, and Mick Graves began what was to be a fine exhibition of high marking. Twice he reached the ball down from great heights, and twice he dropped it well forward. Barry defending well at first, and O'Loughlin and Hastings next. Forbes and Jackson forwarded on the right, and Keeney went for a goal off a free kick. He kicked out of bounds. Free kicks were uncommonly numerous, and Crap laid himself out to check infringements of the rules right from the bounce. He was kept busy with his whistle. After Kearney's shot, Fitzroy took their game into their own hands and for the greater part of the quarter were pottering around in Essendon territory, struggling for the points which they found difficult to obtain. They got within five yards of the goal and set up a determined onslaught which was ended by McSpearan rolling the ball slowly between the posts and a mighty shout from the spectators proclaimed a goal. Their next sixer was registered by Jim Grace who worked hard and brilliantly for it. The manner of his marking completely deserved the goal he kicked Fitzroy maintained the attack for some time, and then principally through the exertions of Forbes, Hastings and Jackson, Essendon charged. Tenderbrick tried on a snap, but kicked out of bounds. Collins was successful a couple of minutes later in piloting the ball safely between the posts. He marked well from a fine kick to, from the centre by O'Loughlin. This was the only time that Essendon got the ball past the goal line in the first quarter, the strong play of the Roy's backs being too much for their opponents. With the wind at their backs in the second quarter, Essendon made much better headway. They speedily had Fitzroy on the defence, and right well did the Maroons' men respond to the calls made upon them. Their defenders, Reed, Dalton, Hickey and Sloan, were like machinery, though the captain's mistake in holding right proved expensive for his side. Mick Grace was doing a sprint with the ball towards the centre from the right wing when it occurred. Grace's good work was negated, 
and Wright had a free kick, which he was brilliantly marked by Collins, who kicked the goal. A set-off against the one scored by Jim Grace a couple of minutes earlier for Fitzroy. Again, Essendon worked the ball half-forward, only to be shown once again what a strong barrier were the half-backs of their opponents. Hickey entered, and the busy little Kiernan played to McDougall, who raised another goal with a fine, long kick. Time was wearing on, and Essendon wanted all they could get with the help of the wind. Forbes, Jackson and Cleghorn rushed into the fray and forwarded. Moore was marking from a long kick by Cleghorn. He added a goal off a place kick. In the second quarter, Dalton from Fitzroy was injured in the leg and limped about painfully. After half-time he played in goal and was practically useless owing to the pain that he felt. However, he tried hard on two occasions to score goals, forgetful for the moment of the pain. Essendon's skipper made a big change in the ruck after half-time and Campbell did a lot of fine work on the ball. This was the best contested quarter of the game, which was remarkable for the exceptionally dashing play of Vaughan and Hastings from Essendon, both of whom made electrifying runs in the centre. Fitzroy's fifth goal was kicked by Mick Grace, who was playing perfect and brilliant football. The pace eased down in the last term, which was entered upon with Essendon 16 points to the bad. They tried desperately hard to make them up, and worked down soon after the start. So close to home were they that Reed, trying to stave them off, sent the ball behind his own posts. Yet again did Essendon come forward. Forbes and Jackson still being great workers, Anderson, owing to an injured leg, was playing forward now, and had a rather easy shot, but failed to do more than add it behind to his side score. Essendon still had a chance, a remote one it's true, but when Tenbrick missed his skull, their supporters lost all hope. Even the players looked as if they felt they were beaten. The premiership was slipping away from them. On the other hand, the Fitzroy crowd were jubilant. Play on, play on, roared the Maroon supporters. Show them your premiers this time. These cheers seemed to stir the Fitzroy men. They shook themselves together, beat back Essendon from the position of attackers to defenders, and when the ball got down to the other end of the ground, the bell rang, leaving Fitzroy victorious by five goals, eight behinds, to Essendon, three goals, five behinds. It was a hard battle, and the best team had won. They had played splendidly. After the game, the city of Fitzroy celebrated. Players were presented with the premiership caps, and the team captain, Alex Sloan, was handed the football used in the grand final. And later in the week, the president of the Fitzroy Football Club invited the team to a smoke night in honour of their achievement in securing the premiership the festivity to take place at the School of Arts room, Town Hall. A smoke night involved men, a men-only gathering in a formal dinner and music where they could smoke and be a little bit more free in their behaviour compared to the more polite behaviour if their female companions were there. They were quite popular in Australia right up until the 1940s. Sadly, there were two tragedies related to the grand final. On the actual day of the big game, Henry Sutton, one of Fitzroy's loyal supporters, left home with his pocketbook already ruled up to mark down the goal kickers and the result of the match as he had done all season. Tragically, he never made it to the game and did not see Fitzroy's win their first premiership. A plasterer by trade, he fell from a ladder at a Collins Street building site on Saturday morning and was killed. The pocketbook, all ruled up in preparation for the game, was found when his body was taken to the morgue. While not directly related to the match, there would be another sad coincidence with two players from this match being killed in the Boer War. The grand final was the final game for Sam Reid in the back pocket for Fitzroy before moving to Boulder in Western Australia to be a Presbyterian minister. 
He then served in the Boer War as a lieutenant in the Western Australian Mounted Infantry and was mortally wounded in action at Renschengate on June 23, 1901. Charles Moore, Essendon's full forward in the grand final, and who led the goal-kicking in season 1898 and celebrated his 23rd birthday on grand final day. He enlisted as a private in the 4th Victorian Imperial Bushman's Contingent and was killed at Quaggashock on May 12, 1901. There is a memorial fountain in Albert Park, St Vincent's Garden for Charles Moore, and Reed is honoured on memorials at Ballarat, Ormond College and Scotch College. So that was 1898, the VFL second season and the first grand final. Fitzroy were premiers and Essendon had continued to show that the same olds were a team that was going to be a powerhouse in the early years of the VFL. Join me next time to see grand final history in the VFL's third season in the year 1899. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts from. It will help others to find it. If you have any questions or want to leave feedback, please email me at info at grandfinalhistory.com.au and check out the grandfinalhistory.com.au website or our Facebook page and Twitter accounts. Thanks and I hope you join me next time. <laughs>